my name is Aviva Silverman, and I will be having a conversation with Ayala Tashachar Adelman for the New York City Trans Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It's 311. Yes. And it's being recorded in my bedroom in Queens. And Ayala just told me another significant part of this date, which could you tell everyone? Yeah, I mean, I just was like, I was just looking online and I was like, oh my God, it's like, the, it must be the three year anniversary of the pandemic one of these days. And I guess like March 11th, 2020 was the day where it was internationally declared as a pandemic. How did that make you feel when you saw that it was today? Yeah, so many, so many feelings. Um, and also like, and also almost like the, the like, the numbing absent of feelings where it's just like, and, and kind of feelings about the disparity between how that anniversary has made me feel in previous years and how it makes me, how it made me feel like in this moment where I just like, yeah, glanced upon it. Yeah, I don't know, a lot of different feelings. Mm. Yeah, well, here we are. Here we are, yeah. <laughs> Um, I was wondering if you could tell me about your name. Yeah, um, so my name, Ayelet, um, it's kind of, it's funny because I'm also a Hebrew teacher, so I might like get, I might just be like a moment where I talk about grammar for a second. But, Go for um, it. Okay, great. Um, so Ayelet is a name that's often translated to like deer or gazelle or something in that kind of animal family. Um, but it kind of technically means deer of, or specifically like female deer or doe of. And the full version of that is um, Ayelet HaShachar, which means doe of the dawn. And it's this biblical Hebrew expression that was used in various um, poetic writings such as Tehillim or the Psalms in reference to um, the morning star, which I guess like is Venus or, um, you know, the first, the last star. I guess like it depends on the way you think about it, like the first star in the sky in the morning or the last star remaining um, from the nighttime. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit about my name. So beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. Mm. And you said you were a Hebrew teacher. Yeah. Um, could you talk more about that? Yeah, that was an interesting, I guess, like, life twist and turn. Um, I was very much immersed in kind of Jewish spaces as a kid. Um, like, I went to Jewish day school and synagogue, and, um, my dad is a Jewish studies scholar, and, um, eventually my family, um, moved to occupied Palestine slash quote-unquote Israel, and when I moved back to the States, I was having this, um, I guess moment where I didn't want to continue doing the kind of work that I was doing. And it's just, I guess, like, interesting how certain, 
I guess like it's interesting the different ways that like certain experiences can be monetized and there I, I started working as a Hebrew teacher at this language school called ABC Languages in about 2013 and I was teaching modern Hebrew and I did that for years um, and eventually during leading up to and during the pandemic I started offering that skill set kind of explicitly from like my positionality as like a trans and anti-Zionist Hebrew teacher and I felt like that came at this moment where a lot of people for many different reasons were kind of like finding themselves in this process of wanting to return to Judaism but from like those specific positionalities or in proximity to those specific positionalities and so yeah so I've been teaching I've been teaching Hebrew for many years and specifically from this lens of like um I don't know I'm like your friendly neighborhood like transsexual and designist Hebrew teacher and I want to accompany you on the process of re-exploring Jewish roots and Jewish lineage but from this place of being yeah politically aware of the ways that Judaism and Jewish trauma has been manipulated into supporting Zionism and also just like I don't know it's like okay you're trans I'm trans or you're queer I'm queer and like we kind of have this understanding that might be absent from some other spaces. Mm. And I know that um, Hebrew is gendered. How do you work with that when people that are trans or queer want to, you know, change aspects of that or use it in a different way? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I don't teach modern Hebrew as much anymore. Um, I do sometimes, but a lot of people, you know, it's interesting because back in the day, I'm like, well, I teach modern Hebrew and it's like my clientele were often people who wanted to um, connect with Hebrew through the lens of like some kind of relationship with um quote-unquote Israel and whether it's like they have family there or they like have some kind of yeah Zionist ideology um and then I guess like most of the kinds of Hebrew that I teach these days are like Hebrew that one uses to analyze Jewish sacred texts and I think that there you know there's a lot of gender expansiveness in Jewish sacred text, but that doesn't really come through as um, in kind of like the gendered linguistic sphere. So it's like, I teach people the analytical tools to recognize whether a word or a verb is masculine or feminine. And it's a little bit less about like expressing oneself and, and being legible. Um, and then when I was teaching people a little bit more 
from like how do we use Hebrew to express ourselves then I think it's interesting yeah there's this project called the non-binary Hebrew project um that was founded by these two people one of them whose name I forget the other one's name is um Lior and I'm not remembering their last name but they they kind of created this whole kind of new grammar system and that has taken hold to a certain extent I don't know I guess like in North American or at least like in U.S. and Canadian um Jewish settings but it's not something that's present in kind of 48 occupied Palestine slash Israel and so it all depends on like what's the entry point that people want um and I think in 48 Palestine um, slash Israel, people are a little bit more um, like switching back and forth between masculine and feminine or using like the plural masculine. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit less like, let's create a new thing. It's a little bit more like, let's like work with and almost like play with what there is. Mm -hmm. and, and often people are like, let's intentionally confuse people. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you um, grew up in a few different places. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about your aspects of your childhood, where you were, and how that, you know? Yeah. You? I can speak to that. <clears throat> I was born on Long Island, um, in a hospital in Oceanside, and I lived there just for the first year and a half of my life. Um, and then my dad got um, a position, I think, as, I don't remember if he got a position as like the chair of the Jewish Studies Department, or just like, I don't remember exactly what the position was, but he got a position teaching Jewish Studies at Smith in Northampton. So um, I lived in Northampton for a few years. And then we moved, um, we moved to this larger city nearby called Springfield, Massachusetts. And, um, yeah, we lived there for about 10 years. And, um, then my family, yeah, my family moved to Jerusalem when I was 13, almost 14. I lived in Jerusalem for seven years. I then moved to Tel Aviv and I lived there for about six years. And then in 2010, when I was about, yeah, 26, 27, I pretty spontaneously, um, almost impulsively moved back to the US. Um, and yeah, was in Canada for a little bit. Um, and then eventually, uh, moved to Brooklyn, spent a number of years there, had enough of the city. It was doing kind of like bad things to my body and emotional world. And then I moved to Vermont. And yeah, and just about two years ago, I moved back to the city. And it feels pretty good to be here. Mm. Can we go back to... 
um, sort of, that was a long trajectory, yeah. <laughs> or, or Sorry, a quick trajectory yeah. of um, where you've been. Um, I was wondering how being raised religiously or with a religious background influenced you. Yeah. I guess, like, my parents were kind of like, um, we would go to um, conservative synagogues and conservative, I guess, like, it's not really in the sense of like actually being the most conservative of the um, different Jewish religious movements, but it's just a little bit more traditional. Um, and so I guess it's interesting because like my parents weren't religious, but they were kind of tradition loving. But the school that I went to was an Orthodox um, Jewish day school in, um, Springfield, Massachusetts. And then in Jerusalem, at first I went to, um, Orthodox schools in Jerusalem and then more of like the equivalent of like the conservative movement. Um, and so I don't know exactly how to describe it. I think I got like this interesting entry point where I think I got to experience like what it was like kind of living in an almost like protected Jewish bubble. And I think I was, um, I think I was exposed to kind of like I guess I like was able to develop both like a loving relationship with it and also a critical lens. Um and Yeah, it's a good question. I guess I think about it a lot. I think I have like this complex relationship with Judaism as like, I guess like a religion. Um, and I think that that was really more complexified by this process of like, kind of out of this naive, protected Jewish bubble kind of falsely believing, I guess, like, as a young kid, under the guidance of my parents, that, like, doing the Zionist act of moving to, quote-unquote, Israel is kind of, like, the ultimate realization of um, Judaism. And I think that a number of, kind of, like, those bubbles were burst by living in um, Jerusalem, which is kind of this really intense place where you can kind of like feel the tension in the air, not only, I mean, obviously in the sense of like apartheid and occupation and ethnic cleansing, um, but also in the sense of people having really strong ideas about like what Judaism is. And I think I had this experience where 
I was, I think, like, in my own kind of, like, naive bubble, I was, like, we're doing kind of, like, the ultimate acts of Judaism, and then we actually, and then when we actually were there, a lot of people didn't really, like, um, I think I felt kind of, like, the least freedom to be Jewish in the quote-unquote Jewish states, and I think that that threw me into this place of, like, really wanting to, um, have some space from Judaism for many years, um, and feeling estranged from it for years, and, um, it's only recently after moving back to the U.S. and kind of, I don't know, coming home to myself in a bunch of different ways that I've been able to reconnect to it, but also from this place of, like, I don't know, yeah. Mm. Also some emotional distance that I need sometimes. Yeah. I feel like I keep doing the long trajectory and you're asking me about... No, I think that parts of how we connect to our stories are through threading them. Yeah. From present to the past to the past to the present. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if at that time, were there other people that you had reflecting ways that you felt towards the state and towards your, you know, the, the culture that you were being raised in? Did you have friends or allies? What time in particular? When you're living either in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. Yeah. I mean... Not so much outside of my family unit, and I think that just, like, I don't know. I think that, yeah, I don't think I had, like, a lot of spaces to kind of, like, have that kind of reflection back to me. Um... I did with, like, I did, like, within my family sometimes, I think, like, we would talk about, like, our experiences navigating those spaces together, but I think that just, like, yeah, there was something a little bit limiting about that. Um, But, yeah, it's kind of, like, a funny thing where it's just, like, I don't know, it feels like this very privileged experience to, like, um, make a choice to move across the world and then like we ended up there and there wasn't there there kind of like weren't a lot of like people who had that same experience um yeah and then there are all sorts of like realms of like my own experience that, yeah, it was just like very different from the people around me. Um, yeah. Mm. What else were you interested in, in in those years? What else did you engage with? Oh my God, I was so confused. I think it was just so hard to know um, who I was and what my relationship Um, with, like, my own identity and, like, place 
And yeah, I think that there was this sense of like, I didn't really have, um, I didn't really have like the kinds of worlds of possibility that I had growing up here. And I think I tried to like, I don't know, I think that there were some years, especially during high school and a little bit after that, where I was like, well, I guess I'm going to become an Israeli man. And what does that mean? Um, it means acting in these certain ways. It means behaving in these certain ways. It means, um, at the first, at first it, it means like wanting to go to the army. I didn't at first want to go to the army, but I eventually like convinced myself that I wanted that. And so it was like this strange, like assimilation process into, I guess, like both like, like Israeliness and Zionism and like also into like, like a different, like a different flavor of masculinity. And yeah. So I was just very confused and I think I was just like a little bit all over the place. I ended up listening to like, I don't know, I ended up learning how to play the guitar and just kind of like losing myself in like, I don't know, either like heavy metal or like, I don't know, like, I listened to a lot of Pink Floyd and I would just like lose myself in kind of like that really kind of like spacey textured music. Um, I was struggling with a lot of like mental health stuff at the time as well. And so kind of all that was just like, I felt very dissociated from myself. Mm. And what, um, you said you abruptly left at some point? Yeah. Well, um, I think that the thing I want to highlight in leaving is that um, eventually I did kind of find myself there. And so I kind of want to highlight that part of the story. Um, I ended up, it was, it's interesting just going back in time a little bit, like, um, I think like another part of the kind of like naivety was like, I went to this interview to go to the army. Um, and you know, I'd convinced myself that I'd wanted to and, um, and they refused, they like asked me questions. I answered like kind of really honestly and they refused me. They deemed me mentally unfit. Um, and I think that one of the things that, you know, I think that, um, they were worried about like my mental health stuff. And I think one of the big, like secret, not so secrets of, um, the idea for the IOF is that there's a pretty high suicide rate there. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I think all that's to say that they, they refused me. I think they viewed me as a liability and I think it was like, I, it kind of furthered my sense of being 
lost, but I, um, it was the best, probably the best thing that has ever happened to me. Um, and it allowed me to kind of like remove, and, and there was just like such huge stigma around like, not only not being into the, not going to the army, but kind of like being deemed like unfit felt like this statement of like, both like my Zionism and like my masculinity, which I was like, oh, that is some, the universe giving me some feedback about some things. And I think that that was able to like present me with some possibilities that I don't, that would definitely not been, have been possible. Um, and I eventually found queer anti-Zionist community in Tel Aviv and was part of that scene for a few years. And that was really, really, um, yeah, important for my, me being who I am today. And I felt really grateful for that. Um, and I think that there was also this process of like, the more that I was able to see just like how, how violent Zionism is on like an everyday basis. And, um, I think I just reached this point where I was just like, I like, I need to get out of here. And, um, yeah. And so that was like around 2010. That was kind of like a year after there was kind of like this wave, wave of protests in this um, Palestinian village in East Jerusalem called um, uh, Sheikh Jarrah, which I think became widely known in the news in 2021. Um, but I was going there a lot and I was doing a bunch of other activisty stuff and drumming in this anarchist drum line. Um, called Kasamba and I think I just like threw myself into that and then like what made the drumline anarchist it was so it was part of this um network of anarchist drumlines that were kind of really popular I guess like especially in Europe in the early 2000s called Rhythms of Resistance and they took I guess this model of drumlines from, I guess it was like Brazilian samba inspired or Brazilian samba appropriated. It, I guess it's like hard to like know at this point. Um, but um, yeah, it was like this network of kind of, I guess like early, early mid 2000s, like black block anarchists or Black Bloc Proximity Anarchists, um, I think that they formed, they formed in, I don't know, I don't exactly remember the history, but it was like a lot of people who would just like, be kind of like, the, I would say in my, from my knowledge, like mostly white, mostly kind of like punk or punk adjacent anarchists um, in, in the um, early to mid aughts and a bunch of um, 
I guess, like, anti-Zionist, Israeli Jews um, who would, like, tour with their punk bands in Europe came across that and brought it to Tel Aviv in 2007, 2008. And I guess, like, what made it anarchist was, like, there was, like, supposedly, like, a horizontal, like, I don't know, organizing structure, which, I don't know, who knows if, it, I mean, I have thoughts about that, but I won't get into it, but, um, and then there was, like, a website with, like, all the notations of the different rhythms, and so it was set up in this way where it was, like, I guess, like, the thinking was that if there are all these, like, anarchist drum lines and all sort of scattered across Europe, if there was, like, a big, like, G8 or G7 or whatever there was back then summit, then everybody would know, like, the same rhythms and the same, like, conducting hand motions. And they would, they would gather at kind of, like, these kind of super groups and, like, there would be, like, five different drum lines playing the same rhythms at these big protests. And I think it was, like, yeah, it was something, like, powerful to think about. I was never part of something like that. But um, we did have that with, like, our two, there was, like, a Tel Aviv-based um, drum line and a Jerusalem-based drum line. And so sometimes we would join forces and we would all know the same rhythms. And so, yeah. Mm. That's a little bit about rhythms of resistance. Mm. Are there other um, ways you've engaged with music since? I've been less engaging with music recently. It was a really big part of my life for a while. Um, when I moved to New York City, I joined this um, queer political marching band called the Rude Mechanical Orchestra. Um, and... I um, was in this kind of queer and trans, like, anti-Zionist, anarchist, Yiddish punk band for a while called Koit Verdein Verdacht. Um, and, but I haven't really engaged with music from, like, in that sense for a while. I guess like I teach people, I guess like I, I, I teach people how to like um, chant from Jewish sacred texts. And so I'm still kind of like, I guess like I engage with music from more of like a spiritual or ritualistic perspective these days. Um, and sometimes I talk with a friend of mine about like doing a project or something like that, but not so much these days. Mm. Do you have any favorite chants? Favorite chants? Like, oh my god, that's such a good question. I feel like I did... Um, years ago... Um, it's funny, I have like this memory of um just like discovering the queer scene in Tel Aviv and um 
So I, I, there's this one chant that comes to mind, which I no longer I no longer stand by politically. Um, but I think for me, it was just like a testament to just like how important like queerness and kind of like, I don't know, queerness can just kind of like add to things. Could um, you tell us the chance? Yeah, it, well, it was, I'm just thinking about this, like, you know, they used to, this was more like from like a quote unquote two state solution perspective where people would chant in Hebrew, they would chant like, which is like one, two, one, two, two capitals in Jerusalem, which is something that I don't, I don't support. I don't relate to that. Um, and so I, I don't know, I almost even like hesitate to bring it up. But then I guess like one of my entry points into like queerness where I just heard somebody, I heard this chance on this, like, I, on like this YouTube clip because I would watch a lot of like YouTube clips of like queers doing queer stuff before I would like actually allow myself or to identify in that way. But they but they was like <laughs> they were like and it was like it was kind of like hairy legs, hairy legs, or like hair on legs, hair on legs, like two capitals in Jerusalem. And I was like, I I mean, again, don't stand by two capitals in Jerusalem. I believe, like, yeah, I'm for Palestinian liberation and, I don't know, whatever. But I was just like, oh, that's one that stuck with me for whatever reason. Um, yeah, and I'm sure that there have been, like, a lot of other chants that um, have resonated with me throughout the years. Um, and for some reason, they're all kind of like from that particular, yeah, geopolitical space. And substituting words for body hair. What's that? <laughs> and talking and then querying it by um, yeah. yeah, talking about the the plight of body hair. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally, totally. Um, so you moved. I forgot, sorry. So you moved to New York after Tel Aviv or? Yeah. Okay. And um, what was that like? Um, you know, it's kind of funny because it's like, I think I was like, I don't, there was part of me that was like, I don't want to participate in this like settler, colonial, apartheid state which is based off of ethnic cleansing. And then I moved to like, you know, a settler colonial apartheid state that's based off of ethnic cleansing. And I think I, there was part of me that just like wanted things to be simpler in this, again, kind of like, um, I don't know, I think it was like, I wasn't like as naive at the time, but I think that there was a little bit like, it was many years since I had been in the US and I wasn't like, and I hadn't like cultivated political awareness here or kind of like really tracked like what was going on here. As I mean, 
there's cultural imperialism. So it's like, I, I could track what arrived to me from the news, but I think it just like took another number of years before I was able to just like establish like a sense of self in, on these stolen lands and in this place. And, um, yeah. And I think I was, I think I was just like doing a lot of things that I would consider like also like a little bit more like not exactly what my heart was telling me like maybe a little bit dissociative a little bit like kind of like evasive of myself and the particular truths that I think were becoming louder at some point but I did like a lot of like marching band stuff and like music stuff and I think it took me a while to kind of like actually feel like I was in touch with or kind of like bringing my whole self um yeah mm. Um, and when, um, I guess in the trajectory of all of this movement across different places, when did you first start to think about or recognize transness? Yeah, I think it was, I mean, I think it was something that I thought about Even, yeah, like, as a young person, a lot. And so it wasn't, like, unfamiliar to me, but I think I was, like, at times, like, um, at times passively, but at times actively, like, trying to suppress that part of myself. And, um, I think that there was something about being in queer spaces in Tel Aviv that was both liberating in some ways and limiting in other ways where I think things were pretty like, things were kind of like at that time in like kind of radical spaces were pretty like intellectual or like academic and so there was this sense that like in order to like talk about gender you had to like I don't know whatever like read Judith Butler or whatever and there was something a little bit less a experiential and be like I had met trans women and trans femmes in that scene but very, very, very few of them. And it was definitely not a place where I feel like that felt like a valid pathway in those spaces. And I think that coming to New York City and seeing, you know, even though like there was still a lot of work to do and still is obviously in terms of like the way trans misogyny shows up in um, all spaces and in 
radical spaces. Um, I just saw more examples of like, I don't know, trans women and trans femmes doing their thing and operating from um, the kind of like political perspective that I was trying to cultivate. Um, so yeah, I don't, I'm, do you mind repeating your question? Just like, yeah, no, yeah. You, you answered it. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, there were all sorts of flavors of that coming up for me. And I remember just like moments looking back where I'm just like, oh, that was like active suppression of that, where I was just like, that was a desire and I suppressed that desire. And I think that like coming like, although it took me many years, just like being in New York City or in Brooklyn and being, yeah, just like seeing, I think it was actually really important for me to just like see trans women and trans femmes living their lives and not having that be like some kind of like, they're kind of like be part of some kind of like political arc or something like that. I think that was like really important for me. Um, yeah. Mm. And how does trans relate to other parts of your identity? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I was just listening to um, your interview with, um, can I mention other participants? Yeah. I was just listening to your interview with um, my dear friend Ita Segev. And I don't know, she is a dear friend of mine um, in part because like we share this experience of like, I don't know, being in certain parts of our childhood, like from Jerusalem and anti-Zionist and transsexual. Um, and I think that, I don't know, she talked about for years, just like the relationship between like transness and anti-Zionism or like trans femininity and anti-Zionism. And that was something that I thought about for a while um, and how just like certain aspects of those experiences carry some similarities and are sometimes, I don't know, work in synergy with each other, I guess. Um, not always, um, but I feel like in my experience, there was this kind of like, I, th I felt like there was a certain period of my life where my internal thoughts about this was just like, the more that I feel solidified in my anti-Zionism, the more I feel solidified in my transness and womanhood and femininity. And then also the more I feel like, connected to my Judaism. And so they all kind of like felt 
woven together for me at the very least like in terms of like um a particular moment of time in which they all kind of became I guess like more solidified than ever before um yeah I don't know I think I also just I have some like I hesitate to be like I definitely do not there's this way in which I think a, a lot of people myself included can go back at like different like ways in which like I struggled in this particular like normative social setting for many years and it's like oh looking back it must have been because I was trans and so I don't really I try to I don't know do that with a certain level of caution um but I do see like some kind of relationship between like I don't know the particular kind of like neurodivergence and like kind of mental health stuff that I've experienced and transness not in the sense of like causality or even in the sense of like they are one and the same obviously or whatever but like I do kind of like yeah yeah I don't know I don't really have words to describe it but I do see a relationship there. Totally. And I would um, say you didn't have a lot to describe it. That was really helpful. And then, yeah, understanding the intersectionality of how all the ways we exist sort of coalesce. Yeah, totally. So in coming to New York, um, what types of communities did you connect to? I, I heard the marching band. Yeah. The marching band was definitely, it was definitely an entry point. Um, I think it was like this funny thing where I was like, I don't know, I think it's this funny thing, which I think is like, you know, there are so many different like, like trans narratives around like, in what circumstance would like my, I don't know, gender like rock the boat less or something, or like if it did, then it would just kind of like be understandable. And I think that I was like, okay, if I'm like a performer or a musician and then, I don't know, I like, then like maybe that would give me like more leeway or wiggle room or something like that which is just like I don't know looking back it's like that's something that I think about um but yeah so there was like there was like that music scene and then one of the one of the realms that I got into um was um I guess like, yeah, herbalism. I, and my entry points um, to herbalism was often through other trans people. Um, in, 
I, my first herbalist, my first encounter with an herbalist is this person named Jacoby Ballard. Um, he's a trans, um, herbalist and yoga practitioner. Um, and I eventually like took a course at the Third Root Community Health Center. Um, and so, yeah, started kind of getting more into herbal medicine. And I think that that was like kind of my, something that I started getting into when I started feeling a little bit more like clarity about who I was and what I wanted to do and what felt meaningful to me. Yeah, so that was like, I don't know, I would have like little herbalist meetups with like people who are just like at their kind of beginning entry points as I was back then. Um, mm. Yeah. And what herbs do you love to work with? Oh my God. Um, what herbs do I love to work with? Well, I will, I... I, it's hard for me to answer that question, so I'll tell you, I brought like a bunch of, um, I don't know, I guess like nervous system herbs, just cause like, I don't know, I do that wherever I go. Um, but one bottle I have here is white peony roots. Um, and I love working with white peony, um, or just peony in general. Um, and yeah i feel like peony has been really supportive towards me and towards my clients and um just towards so many people i know um yeah the nervous system sense and the kind of like hormonal balance sense um and another and another bottle i'm holding is rose glycerite and I don't know, just rose just feels like this delicious, like both heart opening and also kind of heart opening and kind of mildly euphoric, but also very boundaried place. Just thinking about like rose and thorns and also having this like, I don't know, gorgeous and luscious flower and scent. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll mm. I'll leave it with peony and rose for now. Mm. Have you ever had adverse reactions to certain herbs that you've worked with? Yeah, I have. Um, the first time I ever worked with this plant, motherwort. Motherwort is said to be really helpful for things like anxiety, as it shows up with like the heart um, and blood pressure and heart palpitations and things like that. And the first time I drank motherwort tea, I felt a bunch of um, heart palpitations. And I think that one, I, I don't with motherwort anymore, but I think that for me, that's just, um, a reminder that like there's no one size fits all for herbs and it's really important to just like 
um, to take into consideration people's constitution and like emotional world and just like people are more than, than the sum of their parts, then so are plants. And I think it's, that's why herbal practitioners and especially um, herbal practitioners who come from intact traditions um, of all kinds and perhaps especially like black indigenous and, um, and um, other people of the global majority um, like to think about what the energetics and what the kind of like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like, yes, motherwort is, can be said to be good for this thing, but it's like, what's my vibe? What's motherwort's vibe? Are our vibes matching right now? That's knowledge that I think like, um, that's the kind of knowledge that I aspire to, um, keep at the forefront of my awareness as an herbalist. And yeah, I'm just grateful for, yeah, teachers who, yeah, have reminded me of this over the years. Mm. What are some other teachers that you've been learning from in this, in this present era? Yeah. Um, teachers who I've been learning from, oh my goodness. Um, I, um, I have learned a lot from, um, I'm just, yeah, I'm just sitting with that question for a second because I, there's part of me that wants to just like go off and name just like so many people and I think I want to name um Dory Midnight as a teacher and somebody who's just been an inspiring kind of like queer Jewish witch um for so many people over the years I feel like in the realm of like herbalism um which I mean Dory Midnight is an herbalist as well but, um, yeah, um, my friend Vilda Chaya Fenster-Ehrlich is somebody who I've learned a lot from. Um, I'm not remembering her last name at the moment, but um, there is this herbalist named um, Shabina, um, who's based in, um, north of the border, um, who I've just this kind of like reminder to um like follow the lead of like traditions and often traditions um that are not um that are you know black brown indigenous um that i just really learn a lot from um from her teachings around that um Goodness, so many teachers, I don't, I feel like those are a few, um, yeah, I learned a lot from my friends, Kess Otterleaf, 
about just, I don't know, transness and trans femininity and like ecology. Um, yeah, I, mm. those are, those are some, I feel just almost overwhelmed with the prospect of like naming people who are inspiring me. There are so many. And so totally. if you're listening, then I love you and I appreciate you. <laughs> totally. Um, in, um, engaging with herbalism and coming back to your Judaism in this, in this, um, present tense also, what are some ways that you kind of work with those agents? Are there like rituals or uh, a group or ways that you feel kind of held in that experience or? What are the ways in which I worked with, did you say agents? Oh, no. Um, just like aspects of your either spiritual or religious background now and, potentially herbalism just yeah any are there rituals or are there ways that um you know hold these new forms that are also part of your kind of like familial lineage and yeah it's a really good question um There are some, and I want more. Um, I, um, I recently got to teach um, on this um, Jewish, um, this Jewish platform called Shalmala um, run, um, by, um, these amazing women, Binya Kotz and Chava de Cordoba. And, um, I got an opportunity to teach about, um, I guess, like, plants with kind of, like, affinity for what we would now call, like, sex hormones. Um, both in the, like, reproductive agency realm and, like, the gender self-determination realm as, um, in Jewish sacred text and Jewish textual lineage. Um, and through, through that process, yeah, I got to explore an herb which is not part of my lineage but which was very present in this textual lineage um which is saffron and I don't know it was just it was just a meaningful experience where I got to explore it with um my um trans femme friend Minakshi and um I guess all that's to say is that there are a lot of experiences a lot of kind of like experiences of like trans or trans femme camaraderie that happen that have been happening with herbs as kind of like an entry point but not in like not necessarily in kind of like a formalized sense but kind of like in in like a I don't know it's the friends you meet along the way kind of sense but in in like but in ways that have been um really meaningful to me. Um, 
I think like, I don't know, me and you have a mutual friend, um, Ilana June Margolis, and I'm really appreciative of like the ritual spaces that she crafts in which like, I don't know, I think I've been able to like think about relationships with plants as like guides in those spaces. Um, most recently I got to do an herbal glory hole at um, a Purmspiel that she organized. So yeah, I don't know. I think like your question makes me think of wanting kind of like more formalized spaces like that. And I think I, I crave that. And I think that, I don't know, I think in the meantime, I'm really holding close like experiences of like, I'm just thinking about like another Jewish trans girl who I met off this like Jewish trans femme signal loop. And yeah, she needed some, she needed some hormones and she came over and then we ended up talking and she didn't know I was an herbalist and she's an herbalist and we talked about herbs and I'm just like, yeah, there's something about like these mundane experiences where like herbs and plants are an entry point, which I really am treasuring these days. Um, and yeah, maybe one day there will be like, be something like there will be some way in which I can facilitate that in a more formalized way mm. and like just logistically living in New York what is your um experience of healthcare and ways to kind of like access um what you need yeah that's a really good question um sure exactly how to answer that in this moment um I have I don't know it's like hard to think about that question without being like access to insurance and like trans competent providers and things like that um and so I have access to that and I'm grateful that you know, I have access to that for now. I'm grateful that I live in this state, especially considering this kind of, you know, terrifying moments we're living through around that. Um, and I think that what, what feels good to me right now, especially about my current provider is I think that in the past, um, I think it's just interesting because it's like we talk about like access to trans healthcare, you know, as like as kind of like an endpoint that we are aspiring towards in this moment where like that's under threat, and not to diminish that in the least and but I just think that like you know in the ideal world like access to trans healthcare just like access to healthcare in general is like 
actually, you know, it's the floor, not the ceiling, where it's like, it's great that we have access to insurance and like providers who know that they need to be competent. And also I think that there's still, even in like these, you know, these better circumstances states like New York state where, I don't know, in the past there's just been like providers have prescribed hormones or providers still prescribe hormones and it becomes a little bit more of like a, a numbers game around like estrogen levels and there isn't, this isn't to put a bunch of blame on providers, I'm really appreciative of providers, but there isn't like often the space or the training to like troubleshoot or tweak um, in order so that people not only have like access to these things, but are in a place where they feel as good as we can feel with our bodies. Um, and so I don't know, that's something that I'm thinking about. And I currently have a provider who um, listens to me and who I feel is like really attentive towards what I need. And I, it's like I told her what would feel good for me in terms of um, the kind of hormones and medications, well, hormones that I want to take. And it's good that there's this possibility of having a conversation and not just being like, we're a trans competent clinic, we know more than you. Um, yeah, so it has been nice having a little bit more of like a collaborative mm. relationship around that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and also in terms of sort of like health and well-being, have you had any sort of like safety concerns while you've lived in New York City? Definitely. Um, I feel like that they were most concentrated. I feel like they were most concentrated when I first came out. And also there, there feels like a little bit of an uptick of that recently. But, um, yeah, when I first came out, I would have like, you know, it was definitely like this moment around like 2014, 2015, 2016, where it was like, There was like this visibility thing going on, which I think was often perceived as like, yeah. To some people that was a good thing. And I think to most people that was like, I don't know. I don't know if I wanna like categorize that at this moment, but I think that there are ways in which like, um, there was a little bit more of a, not comparatively, but there was a spotlight that I felt at that moment. And so it was, I would like, almost like anywhere I would go, whether it was like on a bus or a train or whatever, I would just like get, you know, verbal harassment and sometimes like, I, I was lucky to never have been 
um, like physically assaulted, but I've had like, I don't know, somebody punched the window of a train and then like I was on the other side of that. And so it's like, um, relatively protected or just like somebody like just having these moments where it was just like, oh, did that person who like stepped on the gas while I was crossing the crosswalk and I just barely avoided him and then he started shouting something at me was like, was that just some like, I don't know, New York City road rage was that directed at me specifically, which I did, which it felt like in the moment. Um, and I kind of feel like, I don't know, this is obviously like a subjective experience and I have like access to um, privilege when it comes to race and class. I feel like there has been like some shift around that, but also I'm feeling like I felt a little bit more um, I don't know, just like targeted recently. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I want to go into like the complexities of that, yeah. but like, yeah. Mm. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. On um, a separate way of thinking about visibility, um, I wanted to know if you could describe either one instance or ways that you feel seen in like a, in a positive way. Yeah. I feel seen in positive ways a lot recently. Um, and I feel grateful for that for sure. Um, and I think that, um, I'm trying to think of one specific example. I actually don't, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna, skip over examples from this moment and I think I want to go back in time to like this particular period of time where I felt like you know I would leave the house and I would like feel really dysphoric and then I would feel like people would like shout slurs at me or whatever and um I remember this day it was like um I think it was like the beginning of 2016 or just like I don't remember exactly when but I went to this um I went to this show I had had like a really intense um anxiety attack that day that really affected me deeply and I ended up pulling myself together to go to this show and I was just like getting more panic attacks on the train and was like squirting this herb 
um, these herbs that were soothing me. Um, but just like really kind of like an anxious, like a little bit of like an anxious mess. And I went to the show, I think it was called O Earth. And it had, um, it had, um, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson as like characters in the play. And, um, the person who played, um, Sylvia Rivera was, um, Cecilia Gentili. And I didn't know her. I think like we maybe emailed once or something like that, but it was just like this moment where, I don't know, it was just like young, recently out trans girl and like the way that she greeted me, like literally never knowing me and just like she greeted me and I was just like so loving and so affectionate and I don't know, that was just like, I don't know, I feel like I'm trying to like purposely go back in time to be like have this moment of affirmation from like this really powerful elder um yeah that sounds so lovely yeah mm. um and yeah i feel i don't know i feel like i'm in this place at this moment where i feel pretty like i don't know I feel in my power quite often, which feels great. I don't know. I haven't figured it all out yet. I still like, I don't know. I freak out like the rest of us sometimes, or I don't know. It's a weird way of putting it, but all that's to say is just like, I just feel, I feel seen more now than I ever have before. And that feels pretty good. Mm. Is there anything else before we conclude that you would like to share for the record, for yourself? Anything else I would like to share? Um, I don't know. I I just feel like um, I feel grateful to be able to tell my story a little bit. Um, I don't know if this is like it feels like a little bit. Uh, funny to say, but I just I'm really um, I'm really so grateful for the trans women and trans femmes in my life. And yeah, I just feel, I don't know, I feel great about that being a huge part of who I am. And I feel just like really honored to be in that lineage or in that legacy. And I just think that like, I don't know, we're really powerful and I love us. Mm. 
Oh, ta-da. Mm -hmm. Hi, Yellen. We have 